When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In October 2017, in cities across the country, people rioted over a condiment. It's chaos at a McDonald's over, of all things, Szechuan sauce. Customers crowd the counter demanding the Szechuan dipping sauce for their McNuggets. Outside, hundreds more are lining up. What on earth is going on here? The McDonald's rioters were fans of Cartoon Network's smash hit animated series Rick and Morty. In the 2017 episode, The Rick Shank Redemption, the main character Rick makes an offhand remark about a discontinued dipping sauce. In, in 1998, they had this promotion for the Disney film Mulan, where they, where they, they, they created a new sauce for the McNuggets called Szechuan Sauce, and it's delicious, and then they got rid of it, and now it's gone. Immediately after, Rick and Morty's passionate fan base began petitioning McDonald's to bring it back. McDonald's was besieged with demands from Rick and Morty fans to bring back the sauce. And they did, but just for one day and only in select restaurants. They were given just 20 packets each. 20 packets per store was not nearly enough to meet demand, leaving many fans empty handed and angry. I want Szechuan sauce. Where's my Szechuan sauce? sauce? In some cases, police were called to disperse the unruly crowds. This strange obsession with a dipping sauce mirrors the show in several ways. On the surface, it's obviously ridiculous, a kind of ironic performance joke. But it also reflects a deeper belief about the universe and our place in it. Rick and Morty follows Rick Sanchez, an anarchic scientific genius, and his dim-witted grandson Morty on a series of absurd intergalactic adventures. One of Rick's inventions is a portal gun that lets him travel across time, space, and dimensions, revealing a vast, amazing, but ultimately meaningless multiverse. In the 2014 episode Rick Potion No. 9, Rick attempts to make a love potion for Morty, but instead he accidentally turns the entire human race into grotesque, Jabba the Hutt-esque monsters. Our heroes flee to a parallel dimension, where their parallel universe bodies have been blown apart in a botched experiment. They bury their mutilated bodies in the backyard and take their place, leaving the old Earth for lost. Understandably, Morty frets about their old world and everyone in it. What about the reality we left behind? What about the reality where Hitler cured cancer, Morty? The answer is don't think about it. After this experience, Morty lets go of any hope of finding meaning in his life. And every morning summer, I eat breakfast 20 yards away from my own rotting corpse. Nobody exists on purpose. Nobody belongs anywhere. Everybody's gonna die. Come watch TV. Rick and Morty is inspired by a genre of fiction called cosmic horror, pioneered by the early 20th century American writer H.P. Lovecraft. Lovecraft described cosmic horror as, quote, the sense that ordinary life is a thin shell over a reality that is so alien and abstract in comparison that merely contemplating it would damage the sanity of the ordinary person. Many forms of science fiction metaphorically place humans at the center of the universe. Their plot lines give humanity starring roles in waging space wars or bringing about galactic peace. 
Cosmic horror, on the other hand, posits that no one in the universe cares about Earth or its human inhabitants. Even more unnerving, in Rick and Morty's universe, there are infinite Ricks and infinite Mortys in infinite other realities, none of whom is special or unique. In such a vast and incomprehensible universe, nothing human-sized could possibly hold much meaning. This is the frightening idea behind cosmic horror. Not that vicious aliens might invade, but that we are irrelevant. That essentially we mean nothing. And if that's true, everything is equally unimportant as everything else. So why not get absurdly obsessed with a dipping sauce? This is Ministry of Ideas, a podcast about the ideas that shape our world. I'm Zachary Davis. In this episode, we'll explore this fear of nothingness, how that fear has shaped Western approaches to math, science, and philosophy, and why some religious traditions don't fear nothingness, but embrace it. One place we can track Western aversion to nothingness is in numbers, specifically the number zero. Zero has two functions, as a number and as a placeholder. As a number, it sits between negative one and one. As a placeholder, it denotes an absence and allows us to create and manipulate large numbers, like 30 or 300. This placeholder zero was first developed by the Sumerian culture in Mesopotamia around 2000 BC. They inserted a slanted wedge symbol between numbers to indicate the absence of a number in a given place. The ancient Mayans also developed this kind of zero, sometimes representing it with empty turtle shells, and other times with the head of the Mayan god of death. But it was on the Indian subcontinent that zero became a number in its own right. The first known use of zero as a number appears on the Bakshali manuscript, a text written by merchants in Sanskrit between 224 and 383 AD on leaves of birch bark. The book is full of fractions, square roots, and other calculations, but it also has hundreds of little dots, the first zeros. In the BBC documentary, The Story of Maths, Oxford professor Marcus du Satoy describes the implications of this innovation. The Indians transformed zero from a mere placeholder into a number that made sense in its own right. A number for calculation, for investigation. This brilliant conceptual leap would revolutionize mathematics. Over the following centuries, Indian mathematicians continued to refine their understanding of zero. In 628 AD, the Indian astronomer Brahmagupta went farther than the Bakshali merchants, who were primarily interested in counting things, by treating numbers as purely abstract quantities, separate from any physical reality. This allowed him to describe zero as the result of subtracting a number from itself. Brahmagupta's book was called The Opening of the Universe, and the little dots he used in his calculations ultimately evolved into the circular shape of zero we know today. Zero came relatively late to the Western world. The Greeks stumbled upon it when they plundered the remains of the Babylonian Empire in 331 BC. They briefly used it as a placeholder in some astronomical calculations, but they eventually abandoned it, perhaps because in their more geometry-based tradition, zero wasn't necessary. But there may have been a philosophical reason the Greeks never developed zero themselves. They believed it couldn't exist. Parmenides, an influential pre-Socratic philosopher writing around the 6th century BC, argued that all creation, humans, animals, plants, sky, is permeated with an essence of being he called eon. In his view, nothingness would mean a place without eon, a place without being. And he thought such a place was not possible. The Greek philosopher Aristotle agreed, elaborating that since there was no such thing as non-being, there could likewise be no number for non-being. These Greek thinkers may have struggled to perceive the potential usefulness of zero because they were so focused on its theoretical impossibility. 
It was over a thousand years before Zero got another chance in Europe. In 1175 AD, an Italian merchant and diplomat stationed in modern-day Algeria had a son named Leonardo Bonacci. Leonardo was groomed to take over a family trade where accurate accounting was critical, and he spent his childhood learning from all the best Arab mathematicians. They introduced him to an elegant system of numbers that merchants had picked up from India, including the number zero. These came to be known as Arabic numerals, the same numbers we use today. In 1202 AD, Leonardo, better known now as Fibonacci, published a book called Liber Abaci, or the Book of Calculation. Until that time, most Europeans used Roman numerals and the abacus, a bead-based counting tool to perform arithmetic operations. But in his book, Fibonacci demonstrated to his European readers the power and potential of the Indian number system. Italian merchants wasted no time in adopting this new number system, including the zero. It offered a simple way to balance their books. When the positive and negative amounts of their assets and liabilities equaled zero, they knew they were good to go. But some groups remained suspicious. The Florentine government feared Arabic numbers in part because of how easily they could be doctored. With one little stroke, a three could become an eight, or a 10, a 100. The new system, some fretted, would enable fraud. There was also a general antipathy to anything related to Islam. The medieval historian William of Malmesbury considered Arabic numbers and mathematics to be, quote, dangerous Saracen magic. But a more fundamental cause of opposition may have been the persistence of ancient Greek aversion to the idea of nothingness. Aristotle's philosophy had become so deeply entwined with Catholic theology that advocating ideas that contradicted him, such as infinity, nothingness, or, as Galileo discovered, a heliocentric universe, could be condemned as heresy. Fears of zero soon became law. In the year 1299, the government of Florence issued a statute that forbade money changers to use Arabic numerals. Nevertheless, merchants continued to use the numbers, especially zero, in secret, often encrypted messages. This gave rise to the word cipher, meaning code, from the Arabic word for zero, cipher. Ultimately, the demands of commerce proved stronger than the anxieties of the church, and Arabic numbers became the new standard. The adoption of zero revolutionized finance and then spread to other fields. Today, zero enables the complex algorithms and technologies that define the modern world, down to the binary codes that help transmit this podcast. Zero helped give us the power to understand our reality better than ever before. But even as the Western world overcame its opposition to zero, its fear of nothingness took new forms. In virtually all human genesis stories, humanity has played a significant role in the cosmic drama. We are never the creators of the universe, but we always have a special relationship to those creators. In the Western world, this dominant schema for this relationship was known as the great chain of being. This theory originated from ideas put forth by Plato, Aristotle, and the Neoplatonist philosopher Plotinus, and was one of the fundamental doctrines of the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages. The great chain of being placed humanity in the center of a hierarchy, with God and the angels above us, and animals, plants, and minerals below. Humans were unique in all creation because they alone combined the material nature of animals with the spiritual nature of angels. Reinforcing our cosmic importance was a model of the universe that placed the Earth at the very center. The American astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson describes this mindset in the 2014 Fox miniseries Cosmos. A mere four centuries ago, the sun, planets, and stars were just lights in the sky that revolved around the Earth, and that we were the center of a little universe, a universe made for us. Most people in 1599 believed that. 
but new scientific discoveries were beginning to challenge our privileged location in space. In 1543, a Polish mathematician and astronomer named Nicholas Copernicus published On the Revolutions of the Celestial Spheres, a book that argued that the sun, and not the earth, was at the center of the universe. Even more provocative were the theories of Giordano Bruno, a Dominican cleric writing 30 years later. He agreed with Copernicus that the earth was not the center of the universe, but he also thought that earth wasn't unique. In his view, there were, quote, countless suns and countless worlds in the universe, no less inhabited than our Earth, as magnificent as our own, perhaps more so. For these and other speculative doctrines, he was burned at the stake as a heretic. But over time, we've learned that Bruno's ideas of the unimaginable immensity of the universe was more or less correct. Compounding the sense of insignificance that came from our expanding universe was Darwin's theory of human origins. The divine hierarchy of the great chain of being was replaced by an evolutionary tree, with humanity as just one twig among millions of branches. Not only were we not near to the angels, we weren't necessarily above the animals, or even plants and rocks. Everything that exists is just a different assemblage of matter. After such a reduction in cosmic status, it's no wonder many people felt an immense and overpowering despair. In 1862, the Russian novelist Ivan Turgenev published a novel called Fathers and Sons. One of the characters, Bazarov, only accepts that which can be scientifically proven and thus completely rejects traditional religious, political, and cultural beliefs. He makes his purpose in life to destroy all existing institutions and values. Turgenev calls Bazarov a nihilist, derived from the Latin word for nothing. The skeptical attitudes towards truth, custom, and meaning that Bazarov represented continued to spread in the 19th century finding its most powerful and lasting expression in the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. Nietzsche prophesied that belief in God would continue to wane, and that finding new sources of meaning was humanity's most necessary and challenging task. In his 1888 work, Will to Power, he wrote, Why has the advent of nihilism become necessary? Because nihilism represents the ultimate logical conclusion of our great values and ideals. We require new values. Nietzsche and many of the existentialist philosophers who followed him, like Albert Camus and Jean-Paul Sartre, believed that any new values would have to come from ourselves. No longer given, meaning would have to be achieved, whether through creative work, relationships, or simply the pursuit of freedom and understanding. Generating our own meanings in life can be a burden, but as the philosopher Elaine de Baton explains in a 2014 School of Life video, the existentialist approach can also be liberating. The admission that life doesn't have some preordained logic and is not inherently meaningful can be a source of immense relief when we feel oppressed by the weight of tradition and the status quo. While existentialists tried to fill the void of God, others looked straight into the abyss. You are fully present in this moment, aware of your body and your breath. Thoughts of the past and the future do not need to concern you. Give yourself permission to let go. The mandate to empty your mind is a catchphrase in meditation and yoga circles. But striving to bring your mind to a place of emptiness wasn't originally meant to help clear away your anxieties or calm your caffeinated brain. It was a radical statement about the nature of reality, both physical and mental. According to the second-century Buddhist philosopher Nagarjuna, all things are empty, including our sense of self. In fact, he taught that emptiness was the true nature of the universe, 
and that nirvana was achieved by properly orienting one's life around that fact. The term for this idea is shunyata, translated as emptiness or voidness. It's related to shunya, the Sanskrit word for zero. According to Marcus de Satoy, it's no accident that the culture that produced shunyata is the same that pioneered the idea of zero. Here he is again in the story of maths. In the religions of India, the universe was born out of nothingness, and nothingness is the ultimate goal of humanity. So it's perhaps not surprising that a culture that so enthusiastically embraced the void should be happy with a notion of zero. The popular math writer Alex Bellos, author of the books The Grapes of Math and Here's Looking at Euclid, agrees with this interpretation. The idea of nothing being something was already deep in Indian culture. If you think about nirvana, the state of nothingness, all your worries and desires go. So why not have a symbol for this nothing? But shunyata doesn't mean nothingness in the Aristotelian sense of non-being. Instead, it means that things and people don't have any being or existence on their own. In other words, all objects and beings depend on each other to exist. A flame requires the wick and the oil to burn. A seed requires the soil, rain, and sun to sprout. Dead animals and leaves fertilize a forest ecosystem. All things are always in interrelated flux, including people. Janet Gyatso, the Hershey professor of Buddhist studies at Harvard University, explains further. Everything is in relation to its environment, to other things that are around it. If you had something that was completely autonomous and existed only on its own you know, logic and didn't need anything else whatsoever. It wouldn't enter into any relationship. We wouldn't know about it. We wouldn't be able to access it. We wouldn't be able to even know that it was there. And that would be equivalent to not existing. For many European thinkers wrestling with nihilism in the 19th century, this Buddhist idea that people depend not on a transcendent God, but on their material environments for existence, seemed more compatible with the emerging scientific worldview than Christianity was. Buddhism greatly influenced Arnold Schopenhauer's pessimistic philosophy, and even won rare praise from Nietzsche in his 1895 book, The Antichrist, where he called Buddhism, quote, a hundred times as realistic as Christianity. Since then, Buddhist ideas and practices have flourished in the Western world. Nevertheless, some voices remain skeptical that Buddhism offers a convincing solution to the problem of nihilism. Here is the American philosopher Jim Holt in a 2014 TED Talk. To a Buddhist, the world is just a whole lot of nothing. It's a big uh, cosmic vacuity. And, uh, you know, we think there's a lot of something out there, but that's because we're enslaved by our desires. If we let our desires kind of melt away, uh, we'll see the world for what it truly is, a vacuity, nothingness, and we'll slip into this happy state of nirvana, which has been defined as having just enough life to enjoy being dead. Okay, so that's it. That's the Buddhist thing, okay, but, but I'm not, I'm, an, I'm a Westerner and I'm still cons- concerned with the puzzle of existence. From certain Western perspectives, it makes sense to be skeptical of nothingness. But Gyatso says that the refusal to take Buddhism seriously also comes from a commitment to Western absolutes, an aversion to relativism, and the centrality of human ego. People feel very anxious. If you're going to tell them that there are no truths that you can hold on to, it sounds very scary. In fact, if you understand the way that plays out in Buddhist societies, um, you see that it's not necessarily so scary 
after all. It doesn't really mean that you give up on everything that you believe in and all of a sudden you're thrown into an abyss or a vacuum. All it means is that you have a certain sense of recognition that you live in a world that's very specific to a particular culture and a particular group, and these are constructs. The relativism Shunyata implies, far from leading to a kind of anarchic do-what-you-want way of life, is intended to encourage widespread and authentic compassion. If the self is reduced to nothing, care for others can take its place. In the psychological and social realm, it has to do with compassion, empathy. So that's an attitude. But that, of course, then translates into action. How you lead your life is that you're not only always focused on yourself, because for one thing, you're not busy building up your ego all the time. The Buddhist approach to nothingness is not to fight against it, but to embrace it. Buddhism isn't the only tradition to embrace nothingness. It is also found in the mystical traditions of all three Abrahamic religions. The 16th century Christian mystical theologian St. John of the Cross expressed the need for kenosis, or the emptying of oneself, in order to become receptive to God. In Sufi Islam, nothingness, or fana, the passing away or complete denial of the self, is a central step to realizing the fundamental unity of God and self. And in Jewish Kabbalah, nothingness is a very piece of God. Kabbalists called this part of God ayin, the primordial nothingness from which the universe sprang into existence. It sounds very strange to speak of God as nothing or nothingness. That's Daniel Matt, a preeminent scholar of Kabbalah and a translator of the central Kabbalistic text, the Zohar, into English. God is nothing. Now, that is not a statement of, uh, of atheism. It's not saying that God does not exist. It's really saying God is beyond anything we can, we can conceptualize. So it's a way to speak of the, the boundlessness, the indefinability of God by using this paradoxical term, ayin. In Kabbalah, God is like no thing, and so there are no words we can use to speak about him. In the 18th century, the emerging Hasidic movement in Western Ukraine began to popularize the highly complex theology of the Kabbalists by transforming it into something that regular adherents could practice. Ayin, rather than a strange and unknowable part of God, became, among other things, a medium for self-transformation. The Hasidic leader Dov Ber of Meserich encouraged his followers to switch the letters of Ani, Hebrew for I, into Ayin, Hebrew for nothing to turn ego into nothing. He likened this transmutation of the ego to that of a sprouting seed. The seed itself is not evil, but it must destroy itself in order for the plant to sprout. We must first become nothing in order to become something greater. And liftoff of the Space Shuttle Discovery with the Hubble Space Telescope, our window on the universe. In 1995, a team of NASA scientists pointed the Hubble Space Telescope at a seemingly empty patch of sky near the Big Dipper. They wanted to take pictures of distant galaxies and were trying to find a spot uncontaminated by nearby light. Mark Dickinson, an astronomer who was on the original Hubble team, explains their reasoning at a 2017 Astronomy on Tap event in Austin, Texas. Where did we point? Well, we pointed at nothing, basically. Uh, we pointed at a very carefully chosen nothing, Dickinson and his team watched that patch of nothing for 10 days. In that tiny speck of space, they were astonished to discover 3,000 galaxies, each containing billions of stars. That number turned out to be a low estimate. 
When NASA scientists repeated the process with longer exposures and more sensitive equipment a few years later, they saw upwards of 10,000 galaxies in that seemingly empty spot. Confronted with the mind-melting scale of the universe, which may only be one universe out of countless others, one can't help but wonder, what possible influence or importance can one human have? Perhaps this is why Rick and Morty strikes a chord with so many today. The show both confirms our fears of meaninglessness and provides comic relief for them. But the relief is not just comic. Dan Harmon, the co-creator of Rick and Morty, spoke to the deeper consolation the show provides on a video for Cartoon Network's Adult Swim. Do I agree with Rick that nothing means anything? No, I, I do not, because the knowledge that nothing matters, while accurate, gets you nowhere. The planet is dying, the sun is exploding, the universe is cooling, nothing's gonna matter. The further back you pull, the more that truth will endure. But when you zoom in on Earth, when you zoom into a family, when you zoom into a human brain and a childhood and experience, you see all these things that matter. We have this fleeting chance to participate in an illusion. Knowing the truth, which is that nothing matters, can actually save you in those moments. Once you get through that terrifying threshold of accepting that, then every place is the center of the universe and every moment is the most important moment and everything is the meaning of life. The universe is vast. Our lives are brief. Certainty of almost anything is elusive. Yet we shouldn't let those facts paralyze us. There are good responses to nothingness, both secular and religious, ancient and modern. Some enliven us with the challenge of creating where nothing exists. Others humble us to everything that does. Some trade dread for resilience. Others exchange suffering for tranquility. We each have the opportunity to take the hopes and ideals within our hearts and through our lives give them physical expression and form. We can, in our own limited way, make something out of nothing. This episode was produced by Daniel Lev Skolnick. Ministry of Ideas is an initiative of the Religious Literacy Project at Harvard Divinity School. It is produced by Nick Anderson, Galen Beebe, Zachary Davis, Pallavi Kathamasu, and Maria McNair. Sound design and music is by Steve LaRosa. Special thanks to Alex Kingsbury and Dante Ramos from the Boston Globe Ideas section for their ongoing support. If you enjoy this podcast, you can support us by sharing the show with your friends, reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, or becoming a patron on Patreon. For more information, visit our website at ministryofideas.org. You can connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, where we're at Ministry of Ideas. You can also email us at Zachary at ministryofideas.org. We would love to hear from you. Ministry of Ideas is a proud member of Hub & Spoke, a Boston-centric collective of smart, idea-driven podcasts. You can check out all of our shows at hubspokeaudio.org. Today, I want to tell you about a new Hub & Spoke show called Culture Hustlers. Each episode, host Lucas Spivey speaks with artists, performers, writers, designers, and other cultural entrepreneurs about how they manage to make a living making culture. Lucas hosts the show from inside the Mobile Incubator, a 57 Shasta camper towed by a 73 Canadian ambulance. The beauty of the show is that it's about how people pursue their dreams and make it real. The show's entire 13-episode first season is available at culturehustlers.com dispatches. 
hub, and spoke. Audio Collective.